comes to life and death by life and death. They're supposed to do. They're confused about the meaning of life. Others, and I think this is a growing number, especially in Canada and the United States, try not to think about it. They drown out the, the seriousness of it, the, the finality of it with partying or, or life or job or whatever. But the reality is no matter who you talk to, no matter where you go, the struggle is real. Life and death. Death and life. It's debated. Whether it's in the forms of abortion on one end of the spectrum or assisted suicide on the other. We wrestle with it in should folks live who've been horribly handicapped or diagnosed with chronic or terminal illnesses. That's the stuff of your media today. Yet the truth is that the percentage of people that deal with that particular struggle is amazingly low compared to those who are flat out afraid to die. They don't want to die. In fact, they don't only not want to die, they want to never die. But let me ask you this question. Do you want to die or do you want to live? Every one of you has wrestled with this question. Humanity is obsessed with healing itself and living forever. And yet even in this area, we are confused. Talk to people today on the streets, at coffee shops. We, do we simply want to live or do we want to live well? When we talk about eternal life, if you ask someone what that means, you're going to get a variety of answers. What does it mean to have everlasting life? I mean, even in hell, you have everlasting life. You have eternal life. But according to the Bible, it is a life of torment. In fact, some say to live forever is less than ideal conditions would be hell on earth. Some people have said to me just this past week because of what they're going through, Pastor Steve, Steve, I'm living hell on earth. And I'm like, no, you're not. No matter how bad it is, let me promise you, it can get worse. So we're all looking for the kind of eternal life that we envision. That will be amazing. Think about pop culture. Go down to Chapters or Indigo or Coles, whatever the label is. I think it's actually the same company that owns all three of them. They're just three different names. But go down to any of them and you can go and find full sections where they will sell you books, DVDs, videos, everything about how to have eternal life, how to live longer, how to live better, how to, how to, how to cheat the idea of aging. There's movies all written about it. In my age, it was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. When Indiana Jones went on the great quest to find the Holy Grail, and if you found it and you drank water out of it, you lived forever. And then in the modern era, you have Pirates of the Caribbean. The, la the second last one was all about him going and finding the Fountain of Youth. And that's what two of many movies or television programs that deal with this. We've spent billions trying to cure disease. I watched a documentary just this week on uh, experimental uh, uh, treatments for cancer, some of which are actually taking the HIV virus 
And now they're taking that and attacking cancer cells and so far have a 95% success rate. In fact, they actually use the word for almost all of the, the types of leukemia and over half of the 300 types of cancer. This may actually be a cure. Billions are being spent on this. Billions. We spend billions on trying to stay alive. We spend billions, though, because we want to look young doing it. In fact, the most billions are spent on anti-aging, where we try to cheat not just death, but we want to look good doing it. We want the same energy we've always had, that same playfulness. We want that sharp mind, and yet the Bible says... It ain't going to work. Moses, the ultimate spiritual killjoy in Psalm 90, wrote this. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Now notice this encouragement. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are, too, they are soon gone and we fly away. There's how you encourage people on a Monday morning. Okay? That is not what we are looking for when we think about the fountain of youth. We want to have eternal life, but we can be easily turned off by what it might look like. There are biblical examples of this. In the Old Testament, you have this gentleman by the name of Naaman. He was the Syrian general at the time. And in 2 Kings 5, he had leprosy and he wanted to live and he didn't want to die. And so he goes and finds this man of God in, in Israel named Elisha. And so Elisha won't even go out to meet him. He won't even dignify him with his presence. Instead, through his servant, he says, Go dip yourself in the Jordan River, which, by the way, is not the cleanest of rivers. And Naaman is appalled. He's offended that this man of God would tell him this. And he starts talking about the beautiful rivers that they have. And, and he has to be convinced by his own entourage. Listen, this is a little thing for you if it means healing. In the New Testament, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you read about the rich young ruler. Who he goes to Jesus and he gives this, this facade of, of genuineness. He says, Rabbi, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Because he, he said he wanted to live forever. And Jesus says, oh, only one thing you lack. Go and sell all your possessions. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And it says, and his countenance fell. And he left sadly because he had lots of money. Because we find out he didn't just want to live forever. He, he wanted to live forever with his stuff. He wanted to be able to live forever and live the life that he imagined himself. And so in John chapter 6, verses 52 to 59, we come to the point in this long conversation that started all the way back in the beginning that started as a conversation between Jesus and the crowd. About halfway through, the religious leaders at Capernaum get involved and there's onlookers that are at a crossroads and a decision is about to come to hand because Jesus is going to force the issue now in verses 52 to 59. And don't forget the context and the circumstances of this bigger passage. Back at the beginning of John 6, Jesus has fed thousands miraculously, 15 to 20,000 perhaps. Then he walked on water. Then he calmed a storm. And the crowd started by wanting to make Jesus king by force. They've looked for him. They found him. They've entered into this conversation with him. But very quickly, the inquiry has become a debate. Now how? Why? 
Because Jesus has not responded to their king desire the way they wanted him to. Instead of promises of more bread and an easier life, which is what their view of eternal life was, it's what they wanted to live forever. Jesus talked about himself being the bread of life. That they needed to believe in him and that this would lead them to trying to figure out who he was. Some thought only about his parents. Others are put off by his claiming to be God in the flesh. And then when he makes his claim to be bread of, all, bread of life to top it all off, he tells the crowd that they've got to eat his flesh and drink his blood for them to live forever and have true eternal life. And that was just straight up offensive. Now, all of this was written, believe it or not, by John the Apostle. And yep, I'm going to say it again. John is allowing us to peer in on this conversation and these conversations. John has deliberately chosen these seven signs and these seven I am statements. He's written this gospel account of Jesus with one purpose in mind. And ironically, don't miss that John is asking us, the reader, to come to the same conclusion that Jesus is here asking the crowd to come to in our passage. Remember, he tells us this in John 20, 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the result of that believing is you will have life in his name. So with this struggle of life and death, with this offensive inquiry of who is Jesus, take that attitude into John 6, 52 to 59. But as I'm reading it, I've titled the sermon, A Preview of Easter. And I want you to ask yourself, as I read these words, what comes to your mind while I read? Because this passage is often misread, misinterpreted, and misapplied, and well, missed entirely for what Jesus is actually saying and what John wants you and I to get from it. So here is the word of God, John 6, beginning in verse 52. Now, after Jesus has just said again in 51, I am the bread of life, notice verse 52, then the Jews disputed among themselves. Jesus is no longer part of this. Now the crowd is arguing amongst themselves. I, I love the comedic value of this, okay? Now they're arguing amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's the argument. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And then John summarizes the location. He says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. 
And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So this morning, let me take you through three quick breakdowns of this. I've said this is a preview of Easter. So first of all, if you take notes or it helps you keep track of things, Easter confused and debated. It starts off in verse 52 that Easter is confused and now debated. So let me set the scene again, right? This crowd is gathered at Capernaum. We know that from verse 59. Jesus, his disciples, being the inner group of disciples, when I say that I mean the 12, and the crowd, which included a lot of larger group of professed disciples, have all landed in Capernaum. Now they've all pushed themselves into the synagogue. So you've got locals and visitors, you've got religious leaders, you've got Pharisees, you've got folks who've traveled back and forth to Jerusalem. You might even have some of Jesus' birth family there because they're going to make an appearance in the next chapter. So it could have been that Mary was there, maybe some of his brothers are there, his stepbrothers are there. It's also the time of the Passover. Never forget that. This is the season of Passover when the Jewish mind would be thinking about a Passover lamb. They would be thinking about killing a lamb and so much of it's to be given to the priest and so much of it's to be kept for yourself and you actually cook it and you eat it and you celebrate a Passover. This is all going on in the background. Jesus has provided food. He's walked on water and has a crowd that at one point was going to make him king, but the conversation, as I said, has turned out to debate. And in verse 52, it's no longer debate with Jesus. Now they're debating themselves. They're now talking amongst themselves. The conversation is a debate amongst themselves. Look at the verse again. They notice the question. Notice what they say in verse 52. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, I need you to understand here what you is not being debated. The Jews here do not for one second think that Jesus is advocating cannibalism. I don't want you to think 21 centuries removed that that's what offended them. They knew quite well that Jesus wasn't speaking literally. They knew that that, because Jesus would have been violating Jewish law if he said it. And he didn't come to break the law, but to fulfill it. They knew that. No, they're offended that he would use such figurative language in the first place. They're most offended that he... Joseph and Mary's boy, remember a few verses earlier, the carpenter from Nazareth is claiming to be God in the flesh, that he is the answer to their needs, that he is superior to Moses, that he's better than the manna, and ultimately that he's better than the Jewish sacrificial system as he says this during an approaching Passover. Jesus is using this figurative language, but they read between the lines. This is what the crowd, the religious leaders, and the so-called disciples of Jesus all understand to be Jesus talking about. Now let's, let's get to the crux of it. J.C. Royal does a great job of summarizing what Jesus is saying. The flesh and blood of the Son of Man mean that sacrifice of His body, which Christ offered up on the cross when He died for sinners. The atonement made by his death, the satisfaction made by his suffering as our substitute, the redemption affected by his enduring the penalty of our sin in his own body on the tree. This seems to be the true idea that we should get before our minds. This is what he is trying to get this crowd to see, and they don't want any part of it. So don't think for a second they're offended because they're like, Who is this telling us to eat his flesh and drink his blood as if he was being some weird, perverse, pagan cannibal? That's not what offends them. 
They don't think for one second he's being literal here. They certainly know the difference. Because if, if they thought he was talking about cannibalism, they would not have debated. They'd have attacked him. They'd have picked up stones again. This expression that they disputed amongst themselves strove song feeling amongst the Jews. If you remember back when he said he came down from heaven, back a few verses earlier, they grumbled. When he speaks about giving his flesh to eat, they disputed. It's the same word, by the way, that James used in James chapter 4 when he said, where do these fights and wars come between you? That's the same word. So he wants us to, they're arguing among themselves about what Jesus could possibly mean and if he has the right to say these things. So there's likely a group going, who in the heck does he think he is? And then there's another group going, okay, listen, listen, I don't like it either, but what do you think he means? What do you think he's talking about? Do you, do you really think he's claiming to be God? Well, they can't be claiming to be God. And another group, well, if he's claiming to be God, then he should die because no one can claim that. that's blasphemy. And so now they're arguing amongst themselves. How can this man, if you write in your Bible, circle that word. How can this man, notice, not Redeemer, not Savior, not Messiah, not God in the flesh. How can this man, how, this is Joseph's boy. Likely his brothers are there. If you remember in the very next chapter, his brothers are going to dare him to go Jerusalem for this Passover. Because they don't believe either at this point. The question is consistent with what we've seen thus far, though. If you remember the whole Gospel of John, remember back in John chapter 3, Nicodemus, he said, how can a man be born again? You remember the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4? She couldn't, how can someone have this living water? How, how, where is this? Give me this. The crowd couldn't understand living, living bread and eternal blood. It was just something they, they couldn't wrap their... The crowd wanted a king, but they couldn't understand. This is my body which is broken for you. Here is, here is the preview of Easter being debated. And so what does Jesus do? Look at 53 to 56 because Easter gets explained and expounded. That's the second point. In verses 53 to 56, Jesus explains and expounds. Now, I don't know about you, but let me give you a confession about being a pastor or being an elder. You're often put in situations like this where you get in front of people and you're expected to preach and expound on stuff. And you, you get put in positions where you're, you get phone calls and people ask you to say things. And you get put in, in, in public personas where you, you're looking at people's faces. And you can one of the things that you do is you start to look at eyeballs and read expressions. Now, some, some are doing this. All right. And then even then you're standing up here going, is that me or is that them? Okay. Um, but, but some are smiling. Some, some, their facial expressions don't match. I hope what's going on inside their head. Cause some people look at, if I had a, a way to shut you up, I do it. I, I was going to use a gun, but that's not politically sensitive to use right now. But anyway, okay. You would think that with the size of this crowd, with the disputes that have been happening, the opposition that Jesus is getting, you would think Jesus might be tempted to just lower the rhetoric down just a little bit. That he might be tempted to back off or to rephrase it. Or he might be thinking, wow, this is not going according to plan. These people are offended. They're obviously not getting what I'm trying to tell them. So I better pull back. I, I, they don't like what I'm saying. I better soften it down. But Jesus doesn't do that. You see, Jesus wasn't Canadian. He doesn't apologize, okay? 
He doesn't tone it down. He doesn't rephrase it. In fact, in verses 53 to 56, he just restates what he's been saying all along. He says it again. And notice, he doesn't answer the question. The debate is, how can this be? But rather, he says, this be. He he doesn't even get into the how. Look at verse 53 and 54 again. Notice what he says. Truly, truly, I say unto you, Unless, again, if you write in your Bible, highlight, circle, underline, unless, here's the negative, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. There's the negative. Verse 54 is the positive. Whoever feeds, again, whoever, unless and whoever, take note of those words. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and here's the promise, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice what he does. He contrasts the negative versus the positive. And if you don't do this, he says, don't do this, you don't live. Do this and you have eternal life. And then he makes the promise, a promise of action. Not only will I give you eternal life, but I promise to raise you up on the last day. But notice that recurring word, unless. Now, unless what? Unless you believe me. Unless you trust me. Unless... You do this, and it's only to me you can come to get the right understanding. Jesus has already explained this several times. Let me reverse the order for you. In verse 47, whoever believes. In verse 47 of this same chapter, whoever believes. Look back at verse 40. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is requoting Himself. He's not, he's not defending. He's just requoting. Whoever, again, look, look at 35 and 36. Whoever, whoever. Again in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in whom He has sent. Five times. Five times Jesus tells the crowd, Believe in me. Believe in me. But here they're arguing. What does he mean? What does he mean? How can this be? Five times he said, believe in me. 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 What do you think he means? (laughs) Exactly. Cheryl, thank you. You look like Mary today. Believes in me. All right? Now, just to be clear, what Jesus is not talking about, okay, and, and this is not about the Lord's Supper. Because I asked you, what did come, did come, came to your mind while I was reading this? Because if you're talking to people and they read this, they go, this sounds a lot like the Lord's table. Eat my, you know, eat my, my body, drink my blood, you know, you eat me, you drink. Like, it sounds a lot like the Lord, but this is not about the Lord's Supper. And I believe those that would try to tell you that are wrong, and I'll tell you why. Number one, the Lord's Supper hasn't even been instituted yet. He can't be talking about something he hasn't instituted yet. Second, Jesus is talking to a group of non-believers, inviting them to himself and telling them what it means to be saved or to have eternal life. The Lord's table is for believers. Thirdly, the eating and drinking that Jesus is talking about here is an explanation of the gospel. The Lord's table is a celebration and a remembrance of the gospel. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying this, those who eat my flesh and drink my blood. Those who see Jesus for who he is and believe in him, it's those who have eternal life. And it's to those whom Jesus makes the promise to raise them up on the last day. And that's why then you get to 55 and 56. And we're introduced to the idea of, listen to this, abiding. 
This is where you get this word abiding. And you see, Jesus is going to talk a lot. This is John giving you previews of coming attractions. Because this is the first time where you hear about this abiding in me as I abide in the Father. And then Jesus is going to spend quite a bit of time in John 15 talking about abiding. In other words, believing in Jesus is to abide in Him. It's to trust Him and not yourself. It's to let Him set the agenda and you to abide or believe in it and believe that it's a good agenda. It's allowing Jesus to be our authority, our source of knowledge. It allows Him to set our worldview. And by the way, John the Apostle will explain this for you later on. If you go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, listen to this. And if this, Does this not sound as if John wants to explain John 6, 52 to 56? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. If you want to get much of the explanation of the Gospel of John, read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's like the decoder book that goes with the Gospel. If you want to get all of the Gospel explained to you, go read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. You see, ultimately, Jesus is telling this crowd of observant Jews as they approach the Passover, here's what obedience and faith means. Faith means obedience. Obedience means, means faith. But neither of those will happen without trust. Neither of those will happen. And you've got to understand that when you trust someone, you trust them for what they've said to you. And it's a love that he has for us. In other words, our response of faith and obedience will be based on what we believe about Jesus and his love for us, not in ourselves. And so look at verses 57 and 58 where Easter is extended and promised. See, it was expounded on and explained, but I love the way Jesus ends this conversation. He extends and promises again what he's going to do in just a few short months from now. He offers the crowd that are arguing amongst themselves. It's kind of like he goes, excuse me, excuse me, we were talking Excuse me, truly, truly, I say to you, let, let me, let, the kind of relationship you've only ever dreamed of but never thought was possible, I'm here to give you. And see, this is where you and I mess this up in this reading 21 centuries removed. Because you and I are about to celebrate Easter. Whether you celebrate it as a believing individual, as a Christian who follows God, or you're just an onlooker, Easter's been a part of your life since you were born. The idea of Easter and everything about it has been a part of your life. This was not a part of these people's lives. They had no concept of this. All they've ever known is the sacrificial system that they were born into. That almost basically says from birth you are never right with God. And there's a series of offerings and sacrifices that will buy you a day, could buy you a week, may get you a month, may get you a year. But that's all you can get. And so that's all they get. They've never thought that they could have a relationship with God. Their instinct was priests and a high priest. They saw an outer court and an inner court and a holy place and a holiest of holies that only the high priest could go to and only he could go in there one day of the year and they put bells on his bottoms and tied a rope around his ankle because if he went in there and messed up, he would drop dead. 
This was their version or their view of being right with God. They knew God was there, but he was to be feared. Read the Old Testament. Every time God shows up, people are scared. Read about it at the Mount Sinai when God comes in the lightning. Everybody is shaken. They are freaked out and Moses has to calm everybody down. But here Jesus says, no, 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 listen. Eat my, my body, drink my blood, and as I have been sent by the Father and I am in Him, I come to you and you will be in me and we will be in the Father and you will have a relationship and I promise it will be yours. Our instinct is to think of the Almighty in a holy transcendence. God without Christ almost. But Jesus brings this holy God as our open-armed Father, whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. You know what I found since I have been old enough to think about this in Newfoundland and as I've come back to Newfoundland, do you know my number one burden for the average Newfoundlander is they're very much like Jews. They don't have an appreciation for how loving God the Father is. They live their life in fear of God. And Jesus is here to say, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to cower in fear. He invites us. In fact, he commands us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Never in their wildest dreams could they have thought, I can not only be right with God, but God sent himself to redeem us and to have an intimate, eternal relationship with us. This crowd has lived out the sacrificial system their whole lives. And now here's Jesus saying, look, I've come from the Father to you to offer you and what only the Father can give because I am God in the flesh. This living God and sending the Son established that he would also in life in himself. The, <laughs> he, he says, here I am to give myself to you. And so as you head towards Easter and this week towards Palm Sunday and after that Easter weekend. What does John 6, 52 to 59 mean to you and I in 2018 in St. John's, Newfoundland? What does this passage mean for us? What are you supposed to take from this? Well, let me give you the first one. Number one, make the connection. Don't confuse your religion with Jesus' sacrifice. And I say this to you here who may consider yourselves Baptists or evangelical Christians. Don't confuse religion with Jesus' sacrifice. The crowd, the religious leaders at the synagogue, all knew Jesus wasn't speaking literally. But nonetheless, they're still offended. They're still put off. They're still confused. And sadly, as we'll see the next time I preach, that ultimately they're going to reject Jesus. Why? Because they couldn't accept who Jesus was. And they wouldn't accept what Jesus is calling them to stop trusting in. They were so afraid of their religious system, and yet they wouldn't give it up. Again, friends, how many do you have family members and friends who are exactly like that here in Newfoundland? They know something's wrong. I can have religious conversations in this city all day long. And most of those conversations are friends and acquaintances or people I meet at the car telling me what's wrong with religion. 
until you say, then give it up and come to Jesus. No, I can't do that. That, that offends me. Because I've given my life to this. I don't like it. This scares me, but this is what I trust in. Now you're telling me to abandon all of this and trust in something I don't know? you got to be crazy. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, crazy like a disciple of Jesus, right? They couldn't accept. And in fact, Steve, Steve Dye, let me give you a Steve Dyeism. <laughs> I love this. Steve cracked this off for me this week. He said, the, the Jews here are like a married woman who stares at her wedding wing all day long while ignoring her husband. Like just stares at her wedding ring. Like, look how beautiful this is. Look how beautiful this is. Look at, and the husband's right there. The one who gave it to her. The one who should live to, to be there for. And, and, and she, she can't see what's being offered to her in relationship because she's just staring at this inanimate object. The Jews were so busy staring at the sacrificial system. Here is the author of it saying, I'm here for you. And they can't see it. They can't see it. But Jesus kept to the message. He kept inviting, kept telling the crowd the loving truth. He kept offering himself, even though it would meet meant with questions, even though it was met with skepticism. And as we're going to see, even though it's met with rejecting, he didn't let the crowd determine the message. J.M. Boyce says this, it's an interesting as an insight into the problems of our own times. That in answering those who were in conflict over his teaching, Jesus did not try to tone down the teaching to make it more palatable. If anything, he did the opposite. It would seem then to make a conclusion that according to Jesus, truth concerning doctrine leading to a genuine peace rather than peace at the expense of doctrine was to prevail. So Jesus didn't act like religion needed to be catered to. And if we're going to see this gospel proclaimed in St. John's, Newfoundland, we have to think the same way. Religion is not the answer. Christ is. Secondly, Jesus takes our place for us to live. Don't replace him with anyone or anything, especially yourself. Jesus has come to take our place. So don't replace him. Do you realize what happens here? They were willing to accept their own damnation rather than accept Jesus' redemption. This is the essence of propitiation that so many miss. Jesus is offering to take our place. He offered himself. Jesus gives his life for us by taking our place for us. Never forget that Jesus gives us life while taking our damnation. He's our replacement. Jesus offers the crowd and you and I to take our sin and give us his perfection. To take our punishment and give us adoption. He offers to take our hell to give us a place in heaven with the Father. To make things right but put things back to the way. Listen, you want the whole Bible in five words? God, man, Christ, response, restoration. That's Genesis to Revelation in five words. And so as we close, remember what J.C. Ryle said. Few passages of Scripture have been so painfully rested and perverted as that which they have now read in John 6, 52-59. The Jews are not the only people to have striven about its meaning. Rather, let this passage mean what it does. Jesus offers the most matchless gift, what no money can buy, what no scientist can bottle, that you would be received forever as a dearly beloved child into the life and love of God if you will only believe. 
And if you're here this morning, let me ask you again some pointed questions. I don't want to take it for granted that because I know most of you that you're all Christians. Have you confessed your need of Jesus Christ and have you trusted in his cross? Have you? Or are you still conversing with Jesus or debating amongst yourself? In a few short chapters in John 10.10, he said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You, whoever you are, you can have eternal life by receiving Jesus Christ in trusting faith. And so let me give you very quickly three takeaways. Number one, faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. Now let me really pop a couple of bubbles. Because you prayed a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Because you were raised in an evangelical church doesn't make you a Christian. Because you read your Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Faith in Jesus is necessary for salvation. See, all too often we confuse the quantity of faith with the quality of faith. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In your Bible, over and over and over again, we are called to have faith in Jesus. Now let me say this clearly. It's not faith in the cross. It's not faith in an empty tomb. It's not faith even in the Bible. It's always and only to be faith in Jesus. You and I are all different in this room. We're all going to have different levels of faith, and that faith will grow at different speeds. But it's the object of our faith that must be and always be Jesus Christ. If you think about those on that first Passover back in Exodus, do you think everybody killed the Passover lamb and sprinkled blood on the door lintels and on the top and thought with the same level of faith? You know some people are like, I do this, I'm saved. Other people were going, I don't know what this is going to work, but I will trust that if I do this, I might make it. And everybody that did it made it. It wasn't the quantity of their faith. It was the quality of their faith. Again, J.M. Boyce said this, Is he, Christ, as real to you spiritually as something as you can taste or handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? I love this. He says, Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he must be as real and useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and useful than these, the unfortunate thing is, is that for many people he is much less. I've heard more people talk about how much they love a Big Mac and fries than how much they love abiding in Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism is profoundly right. The question for us all to ask is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Because that's where I started. And the answer can and must always and only be that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's beautiful. That is what faith is. This is what it means to eat Christ's flesh and drink His blood. It is to commit yourself to Him. It is to accept His promise and pledge on your behalf and to repeat His promise, vowing to be His for eternity. And if you've done that, you have done the most important thing there is to be done in this life, regardless of what you may have already accomplished or not accomplished. If you have not done this, then you should know that today is the day of salvation. Number two, faith in Jesus is always personal. It's always personal. Folks, listen, I'm not, the elders of this church are not, this church is not called to entertain people. We are called to invite people into a deeper relationship with God through Jesus Christ. 
Notice the words again in our passage. Remember back in 51, anyone. In verse 56, whoever. This is the massive invitation. It's a loving call. It's grace extended. I love to read Tim Keller because he tells us why this is not only true, but it's also how you will know if you've got it or not. He says this, you can never get out of romance, money, and accomplishment, the fulfillment that only a relationship with God can bring. So life in a world without God will indeed feel futile and absurd. Man, that's just true. When you and I feed on Jesus, he becomes more real. We get the assurance of our faith. Friends, listen, truth isn't afraid of a question. Jesus is not offended by our inquiries or our struggles or our doubts. For goodness sakes, read the Psalms. They're full of authors who had struggles and doubts and questions. The difference between the Psalm writers and the crowd was faith in Jesus. The psalmist took their burdens to Jesus. They surveyed the wondrous cross, which leads to finally, faith in Jesus is always about the cross. This is previews of Easter. See, not only did he introduce the words of whosoever, but notice in 53, unless and no life. There's no other way to be right with God but through Jesus Christ. And there's no way to believe in, trust, accept, embrace Jesus Christ but through the cross. You see, unless you and I believe and trust, then there is no life. It's personal knowledge joined by even empowered by personal relationship. The pastor Richard Phillips said, it is not enough for you to admire the story of the birth of Jesus or to appreciate his lofty teachings or to praise his perfect example in life. To believe on Jesus is to trust that he died the death that your sins deserved. He suffered on your behalf as an atonement for your sins. He died in your place as a substitute provided by God so that you might be forgiven and saved. Oh, church, listen. Michael Horton says this, genuine renewal only comes when we realize that the church is always drawn to distractions and must always be redirected to Christ. And that's why Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So this Easter, will you survey the wondrous cross? Will you have that faith in Christ? That personal relationship? Will you see the cross? Will you come and celebrate and commune and commit? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for a beautiful morning to be reminded of how awesome you are. Father God, I thank you that I can call you Father because of Jesus. I don't have to be afraid of you. Because of Christ, I'm your son. I pray that my brothers and sisters in this room, if they believe in Jesus, will know the reality of what it means to be a son and a daughter of God. And that we would live that out and respond to it. We'd want to share it with other people. And if there's anybody, anybody in this room who's struggling or doubting and they need prayer, would they come find me or another elder or some man or woman in this church that can pray with them and over them? And Father, would we pray evangelistically? Lord, I look into the faces of people here and I know and I see the pain and the longing and the desperation on their faces for a loved one, a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. 
They want so desperately for the family to be saved. Oh God, give us renewed hope in evangelistic prayer. Lord, change us. May we not become religious. May we seek to have this relationship with you. And may we commit this Easter to surveying the wondrous cross. In Jesus' name and all God's people said,